Welcome to episode four of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gave me a reason to live and also wrecked my life. I'm your host, James Toth. A brief excerpt from this episode was published in the December 2017 edition of The Wire magazine. On our last episode, we met and we heard my first band, The Party People, and we learned all about the group's breakup and farewell concert. Following this historic event, our family moved to nearby Eltingville as planned, leaving McVeigh Avenue and the party people behind. Excitement was in the air. Shortly after arriving at our new home, we learned that mom was pregnant. A few months later, my paternal grandparents, who we called Nanny and Pops, and wayward Uncle George moved into the first floor of our new two-family house on Pacific Avenue. Pacific, Nanny informed me, means peace. You're going to give this place a bad name, she teased. Nanny was well-read, witty, eternally curious. Pops was a Korean War veteran, and he'd been something of a super cop whose exploits were regularly immortalized in the New York newspapers and on the local evening news, and have since been cited in several books. As a member of the elite bomb squad, and later the emergency service, Pops had done a lot of wild shit. Like one time he saved circus performers Siegfried and Roy from being mauled by their own rogue tiger. Too bad he'd already retired in 2003 when Roy Horn was attacked again in Las Vegas by one of his white tigers. Pops also rescued a woman from beneath a fallen subway car, dismantled numberless bombs, and on more than one occasion scaled the Twin Towers to successfully apprehend jumpers. So plentiful were Pops' professional adventures that a short-lived television drama called True Blue which aired briefly in the mid-1980s, used them as a basis for the show. Pops' name is also an answer to a trivia question in the New York edition of the board game Trivial Pursuit, and was once known as the most photographed cop in New York. Despite his action hero-worthy life, Pops was sweetly, almost subordinately deferential to Nanny, and generous and patient with his grandchildren, which proved that a person could be gentle without necessarily being soft. Included with Nanny and Pops as a sort of package deal was my dad's younger brother, George, who was given the smallest room downstairs. Where my father was fastidious, accountable, and conservative, Uncle George was reckless, irresponsible, distinctly burned out. A lifelong addict, Uncle George told dirty jokes, guzzled beer, and looked a lot like Keith Richards. Almost immediately, I began emulating Uncle George, even adopting his dress code of plaid wool shirts, ripped jeans, and bandanas. Those of you who know me in real life will know that I pretty much still dress this way. A writer of poetry, Uncle George kept his numerous sheets of verse bundled inside various gallon-sized Ziploc bags. As a child, Uncle George began favoring his left hand, and his superstitious Austrian-born grandmother, believing the emerging dominance of his left hand to be a sign of wickedness, attempted to correct this diabolical handicap by forcing Uncle George to write using his right hand, which forever rendered his handwriting an illegible, shaky scrawl. Soon I began breaching Uncle George's Winston-smoke-fogged room to rifle through his stacks of LPs. I possessed at the time the nascent headbanger's thirst for anything with even a vague whiff of moral degeneracy, so I initially took an interest in albums bearing song titles like Cocaine and Heroin, and I passed up square-looking albums by bands with cornball names like the Flying Burrito Brothers and Ultimate Spinach. Beside his stacks of LPs, 
Uncle George kept a shoebox full of matte Kodachrome prints, depicting his many cross-country road trips with various pals, girlfriends, and hitchhikers. A strange-looking record by someone named Leo Kotke stood out among the LP sleeves. The surreal cover shot features two men against a backdrop of Monument Valley, Utah. Which one was this Leo? I assumed it was the Ricky Nelson-looking guy on the left, wearing a snazzy, bright red western shirt and a shy smile. To his left is a stringy-haired man in a Tiger Scouts cap, donning a grotesque mask of what appears to be a deranged garden gnome. Even the mask somehow looks stoned. The identity of this mystery man is not listed anywhere on the sleeve, though it has since been indicated to me that the masked man is none other than rocker Joe Walsh. Anyway, behind this odd pair, in softer focus, is Monument Valley's vast, lonely-looking expanse. The clouds above this barren landscape look thin and unimpressive, emphasizing the scale of the subtle wash of blue sky, which looked impossibly gigantic behind them. The music on the Leo Kotke record provided no more clues than its sleeve. The fact that the album was instrumental, I don't think I'd heard any instrumental albums by this point. It only made the entire package seem even more alien. With no human voice with which to connect this compelling image, I was left with a new set of questions. Who would record such a thing? Who'd want to release it? Most of all, who is going to listen to it? Not me, I decided almost immediately. The sleeve's coupling of evocative, strange, and seemingly unrelated images, however, continued to pique my adolescent imagination, perhaps because the sleeve reminded me so much of the round-edged photographs in Uncle George's shoebox, snapshots of hippie dreamers cutting vivid and glamorous figures against mesas, sand dunes, and mountains. Kotke's album sleeve could have easily been one of Uncle George's photographs. The man in the mask could be Uncle George himself, horsing around with a runaway he picked up in San Antonio and lost track of weeks later somewhere outside of Death Valley. Uncle George had a thousand stories like this. The wilderness I observed in Uncle George's photos and on Kotke's album sleeve looked nothing like the paved and claustrophobic Staten Island where we lived. It looked like a distant and mysterious planet, one where you could throw a ball as hard as you could and not hit anything. I stared at this cover image a lot, memorizing its details until the moment captured in the photo took the form of a memory of an event that had never occurred, or had yet to occur. I marked my encounter with this photo, along with the ones in Uncle George's shoebox, as a prime instigator for a wanderlust that would eventually define my life as a touring musician, seduced as I was by them with the promise of freedom and adventure. Uncle George abided me as a kind of sidekick, regaling me with stories of his various exploits and adventures, which were legion. Though he was in almost every way the complete opposite of Pops, he shared with my grandfather, his dad, the quality of seeming to have lived many lives in one. Uncle George was the kind of guy who could begin a story with, So I had this fucking car one time, right? And you'd immediately begin laughing in anticipation of the hapless tale that was sure to follow. He once challenged me to try to shoot with my plastic dart gun from across the basement the cherry from his lit cigarette. I think we were both surprised when I made the lucky shot, producing a burn in the carpet that remains to this day. Of course, burn holes were something of an Uncle George trademark. His blankets, t-shirts, and rug were constellations of the unmistakable shallow cavities caused by the fallen Winstons that so often slipped from his grip. Even his LP sleeves were covered in cigarette burns. It wasn't until years later when I would occasionally entertain myself by getting stoned and blissfully falling asleep while listening to a record that I understood the plausibility, 
if not the frequency, of these kinds of accidents. Uncle George and I watched a lot of television together, usually stuff like Cagney and Lacey and MASH, and he let me hang out when he watched risque movies like Clan of the Cave Bear and Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Together, Uncle George and I saw This is Spinal Tap, throughout which Uncle George howled with laughter. I didn't find it funny yet. The irony and the humor of the film was lost on me until years later, but I loved the music, and I very badly wanted the soundtrack. A few weeks later, Uncle George came home from somewhere and presented me with a copy of it. The same week, he arrived home at around 2 a.m. with a group of about 12 howling drunk men and women I had never seen before. It seems that the bar at which Uncle George and his new friends had been drinking was just closed for the night, so Uncle George invited the entire group back to the house for a second last call. I was the only one awake when he arrived. Uncle George saw me, smiled mischievously, and placed a finger to his lips. Shh. This shushing was in vain, of course. Soon my entire family was awake, confused, and very, very angry. Make sure no one steals anything, he whispered to me. When he wasn't working for the parks department, Uncle George ran his own one-man tree pruning service, which he called a cut above. This became his unofficial nickname. I would accompany Uncle George, or Uncle Cut Above, on various tree service jobs, and then to the city dump, after which he'd take me to the local record store, Ziggy's. Along the way, he preached to me about the evils of heroin, taught me how to tie obscure knots, and educated me about the various flora we'd pass along the way, how to recognize bushes and trees, and how to identify their individual characteristics. He used mnemonic devices and puns to help me remember the names. Miss Bush, he'd observe, pointing as we drove past one. Then he'd raise his fists like a boxer and repeat, Mess." followed by his distinct witch's cackle. <laughs> Hanging out with Uncle Cut Above was a little like having Neil Young as a Boy Scout leader. Though it was still a year away, Nanny offered me a $100 bribe to go through with my pending confirmation. I know you're a big heathen right now, she said dismissively, but do this for me. Nanny, being a shrewd and canny sort, probably considered this a brilliant trick she'd played on me. The Catholic ceremony of confirmation, as its name makes explicitly clear, is one in which a person confirms the faith of their infant involuntary baptism. But the joke was on Nanny, because as with any kind of hypnotism, I knew that the effectiveness of the ritual was predicated only on the suggestibility of the mark. Anyway, $100 was a lot of money, and I was free to choose any name I liked, so I chose Uncle George's confirmation name, because it was weird, and because it was his. Aloysius. Almost every summer, my family would take a short vacation to some nearby beach resort in New Jersey or Maryland. I don't remember the vacations as much as I do the car rides to and from our destination, during which I had uninterrupted time to listen to music on my Sony Walkman as I watched the scenery speed by from the window of the car's back seat. Sound gardens louder than love, Ice T's power, and the Misfits' Walk Among Us were big favorites, and those records are inseparable from my memories of this time. In advance of one such trek to Ocean City, Maryland, I packed my Walkman and all the tapes I'd set carefully aside to listen to on the trip. True to form, I was looking forward as much to the long drive, during which I would commune with my tapes, as I was to the vacation itself. Just as we were leaving, Uncle George stopped me and handed me a tape. It was Sweetheart of the Rodeo by The Birds. I, I liked what I'd heard of The Birds, but Joe Mora's cover art with its cowgirl standing inside a heart-shaped frame of yellow clovers it just didn't look promising. I grimaced openly, checking Uncle George's eyes to make sure he was for real. 
Just take it, you fuck, demanded Uncle George. That's a good one, man. About 30 minutes into the trip, I realized that the bag of tapes I'd so carefully chosen to listen to during the vacation had been accidentally and foolishly left behind. The only album in my possession was Uncle George's Stupid Birds tape. Over the following week, I listened to Sweetheart of the Rodeo a hundred times, and I grew to love it. And while hippie country rock didn't immediately supplant my love for thrash and death metal, the sound of cosmic American music would many years later rear its head as a strong influence on my own music. In fact, a few years ago, my wife Leah, also a tremendous fan of Sweetheart of the Rodeo, suggested during a trip out west that we spend the night in Graham Parsons' notorious death room in Joshua Tree. Afterward, I could hardly wait to call Uncle George and tell him about it. And though I'm far beyond the ability to evaluate that album with anything resembling objectivity, I do believe Uncle George was right about Sweetheart of the Rodeo. That's a good one, man. I spent so much time hanging out with Uncle George that Nanny began encouraging me to go out and play with kids my own age. Go play baseball or something, she said. This is a good place to mention my relationship to baseball and my disillusionment with it, which I actually associate with my disillusionment with the band Kiss. Allow me to explain. Baseball was a big deal in my family and in my neighborhood, but my love affair with America's pastime lasted only a few short years. The 1986 New York Mets was a juggernaut, an underdog team that possessed that once-in-a-lifetime combination of ability, magnetism, and heart. They spoiled me for all others. The Mets Baseball Club was established in 1962, when my mother was just eight years old. As a result, my mom is a die-hard and lifelong Mets fan, having come of age more or less alongside the team. Though my mother was mostly content to watch the games on television, she and my baseball agnostic father would occasionally take me and my sister to see games at Shea Stadium. By 1986, I was already obsessed with music. Motley Crue was my favorite band, and I knew the words to every Motley Crue song and even who produced their albums, even though I really couldn't tell you what a producer actually did. Most of all, I was intimately familiar with each band member's public persona, at least as calculatedly conveyed to the music press, and I had my favorites. I was partial to bassist Nicky Six because he wrote most of the band's songs and because I had planned to learn to play bass. Between the tops trading cards adorned with their faux wooden border and stats that I received as gift from my grandfather Beeps and the contagious fever of the 1986 Mets, I began to gradually become interested in baseball. Beeps, like his oldest daughter, was a baseball fanatic and was a former amateur player who nearly became a Cincinnati Red before an injury to his left arm made a professional baseball career impossible. At this point, I was the only boy in the family and thus Beeps' only hope for a grandson who might play professional ball. Beeps encouraged my growing interest in baseball and helped me understand the game, its, its rules, its inner workings, its politics. I began applying to the Mets players the same level of obsessive fandom I applied to the members of Motley Crue. And what players? Veteran Gary Carter, debonair Keith Hernandez, heroic Mookie Wilson, regal Dwight Gooden, cool as hell Daryl Strawberry. Howard Johnson and Bobby Ojeda with their mustaches and stoic demeanor reminded me of my dad. Shortstop Tim Tuffle had a habit of wiggling his backside when at bat, in anticipation of the pitch. Reporters dubbed this the Tuffle Shuffle. Tim Tuffle was also the first player I ever saw charge the mound, landing several blows on Reds reliever Rob Dibble during a bench-clearing melee, which, for a boy who only liked to watch hockey for the fights, was very exciting. This underdog player became my unlikely favorite Met. 
I also took a special interest in the pictures. There was something so graceful yet so tough about the wind-up, the laser-focused composure of the thrower on the mound. The team was brimming with personality, and the newspapers dutifully chronicled the Mets' various off-field brawls, arrests, and debauchery, and their vicious, though probably largely media-constructed, feud with the Houston Astros. I loved going to Shea Stadium. My parents gamely paid the exorbitant $5 for the oversized buttons emblazoned with the faces of various players, which my sister and I wore with pride. My family brought along its own colorful handmade banners, encouraging words rendered in marker on giant pieces of fluorescent oak tag. Needless to say, it was left to me, the established literary genius of the family, to devise these slogans. Sitting inches from the television screen, I watched eagerly as the Mets won the 1986 World Series. I can still picture the exhilaration on the face of relief pitcher Jesse Orozco as he knelt on the field following the game's final strikeout, his arms raised as if punching the sky. Over the subsequent seasons that followed, the Mets did not perform nearly as well. Even worse, a lot of my favorite players were being traded or were retiring. Daryl Strawberry looked very strange and conspicuous to me wearing a Dodgers uniform. Slowly but steadily, the entire Mets roster seemed to transform. New players were wearing Mets uniforms, and I didn't like it. I didn't like them. Who were these imposters? I felt spurned and duped, just like when I realized that the knights who acted in the medieval times dinner theater often rotated their teams and costumes from night to night. Motley Crue, on the other hand, was Nicky, Vince, Tommy, and Mick, and, I thought, would remain ever thus. A team, I felt, was supposed to represent a fixed membership, not some nominal brand with parts that could be exchanged and replaced and repurposed at will. I tried in vain to remain interested in baseball. My mother continued to cheer for her team. She developed a crush on new player Kevin McReynolds, and I tried to root along with her, but the ship had sailed. Baseball was lame. Far less lame were the rock and roll trading cards I discovered around this time purchased for me, probably reluctantly, by beeps on one of our regular outings to the corner newsstand. These miniature works of art resembled baseball cards, but instead of clean-cut-looking athletes in pinstripes, they depicted long-haired banshees in makeup wielding pointy guitars. By now, thanks to MTV, magazines, and my dad's record collection, I was familiar with these bands and their reputations. Dio, Whitesnake, Ozzy, and of course my beloved Motley Crue. The other bands featured in the packs of cards looked cool, and I made a note to hear them as soon as possible. Iron Maiden, Megadeth, Tesla. But the band I desired to hear most of all was Kiss. There were several individual Kiss trading cards in the set, and each photo of these armor-clad demons who scowled and spit blood looked cooler than the last. My imagination ran wild. By all appearances, Kiss was almost definitely the heaviest band ever and I loved them before I heard a note of their music. I learned all about them from the back of the trading cards, and I expected that Ace Freely would soon become my new favorite guitar hero. Somehow, I'd avoided hearing Kiss for months. With no older sibling and no cable TV at my parents' house, I was at the mercy of the radio. I was in Bensonhurst visiting memes and beeps, glued as ever to MTV, when the moment finally came. The VJ announced the debut of a new Kiss video. Immediately, something seemed to miss. This was Kiss? Where was the cool makeup? Where was the blood? Where was the evil? The song was Lick It Up, and it was bullshit. It sounded like Bon Jovi, who I'd previously liked but was definitely over by now, or Hart, who were then in its all-I-want-to-do-is-make-love-to-you pop metal phase. Oh, it was so corny. 
Like the New York Mets before them, Kiss let me down. Years later, through a combination of my own natural curiosity and the emphatic endorsements of various friends and bandmates, I finally sat down and listened to the good Kiss albums like Kiss Alive 1 and 2 and Destroyer, but the damage had been done. Some of it sounded alright, and I really liked Ace's solo album, but it mostly just sounded like mediocre, very not-evil power pop to me. Look, I'm 42 years old. I realize that having strong and emotional opinions about things like baseball and kiss is an absurd and irrational waste of time and energy. As a result, I can't really claim that I hate baseball or kiss, but I still don't particularly like them either. Anyway, when I wasn't hanging around Uncle George or trying to like baseball, I was plotting a solo career. I continued to write songs and record them on my tape recorder. Tunes from this period include Time Zone about what else? Time travel, rock and roll soul, the obligatory valentine to the beloved art form itself, and buried dead, a morbid dirge about the unexpected torture of remaining conscious within the grave. The year was 1987 and I was eight years old. Some of the top songs on that year's Billboard chart were Walk Like an Egyptian, I Want to Dance with Somebody, Here I Go Again, and La Bamba. Since the dissolution of my band The Party People, my sister Carrie and I rarely collaborated on music together. I would pitch her my ideas, but Carrie, who was always to some degree cooler than me despite being three years younger, usually rebuffed them. This particular type of working relationship, wherein the more committed person pulls most of the weight and is tasked with cajoling other, less devoted band members, would prepare me for many grown-up musical scenarios that would strike similar notes. Our new house on Pacific Avenue was smaller than the house we left behind on McVeigh, but was equipped with a large, finished basement. The wood-paneled and carpeted makeshift playroom featured a bar, a weight room, and many terrifying millipedes traversing its baseboards. The room smelled vaguely of old smoke, couch fibers, and mold. Nanny and Pops and Uncle George resided on the first floor, between our living quarters on the second floor and the basement below. That Christmas, Carrie and I were gifted a Lone Star Singalodeon Model K3 karaoke machine. This toy was likely purchased at Sears, or through the increasingly popular home shopping network QVC. The machine was equipped with dual tape decks, a microphone, a built-in speaker, and some rudimentary effects. I don't recall ever using the Singalodeon for its intended purpose as a karaoke machine, but it soon became indispensable as a tool on which to record various jokes, songs, and skits. It was also ideal for pranks and mischief. I would drag the machine upstairs to where poor Carrie peacefully slumbered, and I would record her reaction as I woke her from a sound sleep by screaming as loud as I could. One of my favorite wake-up calls was Axel's speech in Welcome to the Jungle. You know the one. You know where you are! You're in the jungle, baby! You're gonna die! That one. Also this one. After a few such incidents, I was informed by my parents that the Singalodian was now, under threat of confiscation, to henceforth remain in the basement. The basement soon became an unofficial clubhouse and laboratory for me and Carrie and our growing group of neighborhood chums. My mom was pregnant, my dad was working three jobs in anticipation of the new baby, Uncle George remained in an oblivious haze of pills and weed, 
and Nanny and Pops were elderly and were both losing their hearing, so we kids were given free reign in the basement to do whatever we liked. Through trial and error, I used the karaoke machine to teach myself how to overdub. I'd stop short of saying I was innovating, but I didn't know anything about multi-track recording or even a four-track tape machine, so I had to invent out of necessity using the tools at hand. I discovered that the same tape deck that played the pre-recorded karaoke backing track could just as easily play any other tape you inserted into it, and the recording tape deck would record both the information from the play deck and whatever new information you recorded on top. This process could be repeated over and over again, allowing for the possibility of seemingly infinite overdubs. Once I had a decent handle on my new home studio, I managed to convince Carrie to help me make a pop record. I was the producer, arranger, and visionary, and she was the singer and face of the project. The album was called 1988 and featured 10 songs ghostwritten by me about love and longing. My sister Carrie was given the stage name Carrie Clue, spelled K-L-U. The Carrie Clue album bears all the fingerprints of a prepubescent at the helm. The cover art, for instance, I repurposed my sister's then-recent second-grade school portrait. It's a dead giveaway. The photo depicts Carrie posing awkwardly against a false blue sky in a rainbow graphic. With her crimped hair, missing tooth, and conspicuous crucifix, my sister resembles a kind of android. But to my innocent nine-year-old mind, there was nothing separating this professional shot from any of the lustful, suggestive photographs that adorn the sleeves of our albums by Taylor Dane or Stacey Q. No attempt was made to tart up or sexualize the star, as a creepy Pops Vengali might have done. It was merely assumed on the evidence of dozens of 45 RPM picture sleeves that if a girl sang the songs on the record, well, you put a girl on the cover. Simple. Years later, Carrie would steal and destroy the only existing copy of the Carrie Clue album. I suppose I'd have done the same thing in her position, fearing blackmail or worse. Still, I still remember the tuneful title track vividly, with descending Casio notes in its refrain, It's 1988, and everybody's running late. Subsequent collaborations with Carrie were few and far between. I could usually convince Carrie to assist me in constructing belligerently sacrilegious piss-takes of Catholic hymns, like Hark the Herald Angels Sing or Here I Am, Lord. When she wanted to, Carrie could summon divine inspiration. Her tremulous, improvised, and legitimately frightening bah-bah sounds on our quasi-grindcore rendition of Lamb of God, You Take Away the Sins of the World were to me evidence of unrealized potential, if not bona fide genius. Still, Carrie typically had to be coerced, begged, and bargained with. She always preferred to be out socializing with her ever-expanding group of friends rather than at home with her big brother, who she increasingly considered embarrassing and insane. She didn't understand why I preferred being in the basement with the karaoke machine, screaming blasphemous obscenities into a karaoke microphone, to being outside playing, or why when my friends called I often instructed my parents in advance to inform them that I was being grounded and couldn't use the phone. Soon I would have no need for Carrie. Soon I would have a new in-house collaborator, a most singular and pliable foil for whom no idea would prove too outlandish, too impossible, or too absurd. Soon, I would have the boo. But that's a story for next time. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to be alerted about the new episodes, and please tell your friends. You can find me on Twitter at JimmyJackToth. I also now have a Patreon page up at patreon.com slash thetothzone. Easy enough. So please visit and donate and learn about perks for patrons. I'll be adding more as we go. 
The theme music for The Toad Zone is provided by my good pal and bandmate Nick Mitchell Maiato, who generously allowed me to use his song O2 Watt for the theme. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This is The Toad Zone. <laughs>